This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Part 4, A Third Oceanic Revolution. Episode 28, An Altered Seascape Emerges. With recovery from World War II at mid-20th century, we see dramatic political and economic, as well as technological changes, altering uses of the sea. Paramount was the political collapse of former oceanic empires, European and Japanese, and a subsequent redistribution of power. The United States withdrew as a colonial presence in the Pacific, but emerged as a global presence with seven to 800 military bases scattered across the globe, a network making even the British imperial stretch minuscule by contrast. The U.S. took command of power at sea as never seen before, with the ocean environment enhanced by new aerial and subsurface dimensions, given impetus by the wartime experience. Sixty years ago, the mid-20th century saw a rapid decline of an impoverished, exhausted Britain as a world power. The Royal Navy ended World War II dwarfed by the United States Navy and now floats fewer units than the late 16th century Tudors. British merchant shipping tonnage also began a rapid decline, both in absolute numbers and in world share. British shipbuilding yards found themselves no longer competitive. They were heavily unionized with latent hostility, subdued resentments, and an intensely conservative management. Thus, two different worlds there reflected the tensions of a class society. The antagonistic mood of British shipyards extended to British ports, characterized by congestion and declining efficiency, as well as labor unrest. These bedeviled growth and improvement. London, hitherto a global port, falls into sharp decline. A new world of shipping demands immediate and sweeping changes for which the British did not seem to have the stomach. The nation suffered a post-war malaise. Victory brought the trauma of unfulfilled expectations. Food rationing continued until 1954. The decline was all the more striking because it coincided with huge growth of global seaborne trade in the second half of the 20th century reflecting the healthy state of the world economy and fewer trade barriers. From the late 1940s to the 1970s, world trade grew 500%. World shipyards were scarcely able to meet the demand for new tonnage. For the USA in 1950, international trade was insignificant. Today, it supplies 25% of GDP and almost all of it moves by sea, although not aboard American ships. 
The general public is hardly aware that we have been depending upon ocean-borne imports for some essential raw materials and most of our consumer goods. Our livelihood hangs on the security of oceanic trade. Like much of the rest of the world, notably China, Americans have lost economic self-sufficiency in the last 50 years. This is part of the globalization process, with the maritime perhaps the first truly global industry. It becomes even more international in organization as well as people, in the sphere as well as among the participants. Shipping reflects a new fusion of capital from advanced economies and labor from low-cost nations often using third-country flags. Ships flying flags of convenience, defenders of the practice call it flags of necessity, as a means for shipping to save money. Even landlocked nations have fleets. For example, Mongolia has 60 ships. This makes nationality ambiguous and blurs responsibility in case of accidents. Singapore's Neptune Orient Line bought the venerable American President Line and took its name. Another international maritime component is ports, one port buying part of the action in other foreign ports. The Port of Singapore and Hong Kong's Hutchison International Port Holdings have become the most active investors in container ports worldwide. This reflects a new role for Asian ports as actors, not simply passive participants. Part of the global shift to the Pacific in the second half of the 20th century. New transportation technologies provide the instrument for East Asian commercial renaissance making a shift in the belt trades, that is, globe-girdling east-west routes, with the new vitality of the Pacific Rim giving the Trans-Pacific greater density than the Transatlantic, and more recently, a chief trade stream flowing across the Indian Ocean, reflecting the European Union becoming the PRC's largest market. As part of the 50-year period ending the 20th century, California assumed major importance in American life, encouraging American eyes to look to the Pacific. Japan, the ROK, Republic of Korea, Taiwan, and China emerge as global maritime actors. Asian trade boomed and became integrated into the world economy. The prosperity is due to local growth and by the relocation of many Atlantic-based companies to Asia. These two phenomena combine to increase their global presence in that part of the world. The shift to the Pacific is one manifestation of a cluster of changes driving what I call a third episode of Oceanic Revolution. The occurrence is too complex for one word such as range or penetration 
pertaining to the earlier episodes. Rather, I suggest three words to characterize it. Endurance, volume, and speed. Nuclear power provides endurance. Unlike sail power, which offered strategic freedom but tactical disadvantage, or steam power, which offered tactical freedom but held strategic disadvantage, a new source, nuclear, could provide for the first time both complete strategic and tactical freedom. It enabled ships to move anywhere, at any time, at any speed, for months at a time. Nuclear power made the first true submersibles possible. With unlimited power, submarines could now replenish oxygen, maintain air quality and temperature, generate fresh water, and move. And as a mobile platform for firing missiles, the nuclear-powered submarine introduced a new dimension for global warfare. Nuclear weapons and aerial warfare made a fleet based on island fortresses no longer adequate for global power. It enabled new projection of American power throughout the world ocean. Nuclear propulsion may offer new endurance, but thus far it's been of no commercial importance. The expense of the nuclear power plant has meant that it has been confined to warships and icebreakers, but it has made a profound impact on the ocean as arena. The Arctic, the smallest component of the world ocean, has been newly opened, both commercially with icebreakers, overwhelmingly Russian, and militarily with a missile-firing, nuclear-powered submarine able to cruise under the ice cap and to launch its missiles without surfacing. But for global economic life, the simple technologies have thus far been far more important than the complex nuclear one. These have affected volume and speed. One such is the bulk carrier. The demand for greater capacity in shipping emerges from a rapidly growing world market, and it contributes mightily to the growth of that market. Capacity was identified as an asset early in the 1950s with the American Daniel Ludwig, a man flamboyant only in his obsessive and aggressive reclusiveness. He was not a mariner, but a businessman. Shipping was only one part of his enterprise interests. Secretive and parsimonious, he once reprimanded an associate for mailing a letter containing a paperclip, thus increasing the cost of postage. His passion was making money, not spending it, and he was one of America's first billionaires. Ludwig seemed full of barely suppressed rage, and it is hard to ascertain the pleasing aspects of his personality. Those who knew him did not want to talk about him. 
He was interested in building ships and finding cargoes for them, for bulk haulage of items such as salt, iron ore, and oil. Discouraged by high labor costs and the power of U.S. unions, Ludwig took his operation abroad, carrying Henry J. Kaiser's ideas of production in wartime to Japan. In the 1950s, Ludwig could lease a shipyard for virtually nothing and have access to skilled and cheap Japanese labor. Another asset was the availability of high-quality engineers and craftsmen who had built great warships for the Imperial Japanese Navy. Ludwig enjoyed a cozy relationship with SCAP, the American Occupation Authorities in Japan, and by special arrangement, he used steel imported from the U.S., then available for two-thirds the cost of Japanese steel. The U.S. then made it cheaper and better than anyone else. In Kure, the former Imperial Navy Yards could build larger and larger ships, and thus emerged the bulk carrier. An escalation of ship size contributed to the relocation of the global core of the shipbuilding industry from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Bulkers reflect the new prominence of oil as cargo, more and more the energy source of choice for heating and propulsion. Steam power had yielded to the internal combustion engine. Ships adopted diesel fuel, and Danes pioneer in adopting the diesel engine just before World War I. Diesel uses less fuel than coal for comparable power, thus it requires less space for fuel storage aboard thus making more room for cargo. Competition drives constant change in the need for larger and larger ships. Tankers and bulkers grow from 10,000 tons to more than 500,000 tons, the largest moving objects made by the human hand. The average cargo ship of the late 19th century was less than 6,000 tons. By 2000, overall tonnage was 13 times that of 1950, 60 times that of 1850. Big ships brought such economies of scale that a T-shirt could travel from China to the Netherlands at a cost of several pennies. Cruise sizes dropped. Fewer people could ferry far more freight. Although larger, ships become more efficient to operate. A ship's company would average 12 to 15. Some companies experimented with fewer men, but that proved hazardous. But there were ultimate constraints on ship size. One was the structural problem of the hogging or bending point of the steel. Also, there were navigational problems. Some vessels were too large, even for the Malacca Straits and the English Channel. Another innovation in shipbuilding carried large impact 
and this was the bulbous bough. Sometime in 1962, on a tanker owned by Esso, an obscure German naval architect, Ernst Eckert, was probably the first to design, fit, and see the use of the bulbous bow, a protruding bulb beneath the waterline, visible only in dry dock. It changes the way water flows around the hull, lessening the drag on big commercial ships. Its efficiency makes for a 12 to 15% saving in fuel consumption, and it offered an easy retrofit. It did not especially favor any nation or entity, or even Herr Eckert personally. There were no royalties. Eckert remained unknown outside a narrow circle. But the impact of his innovation was universal and quick. The bulbous bow was more evolutionary than revolutionary. But another invention would be truly revolutionary, and that was the box. It has been said, referring to the shipping container, that the world is not round or flat, but rectangular. The branded box is an example of the sea invading the land. Waterproof and of standard sizes, the 20-foot length is the global standard. That the measurement is in feet, not meters, signifies its American origin. Some are unmarked. Many bear the names and logos of shipping companies. And the site is familiar to all drivers on interstates. Maersk, a Danish company, is the world's largest container shipper with white star on blue field. Evergreen is solid green. Taiwanese, its home port, is Kaohsiung. People may not see the ships or identify boxes with their places of origin or even with the ocean, but they do see the trucks or the flat cars on railroad tracks that often run alongside the highways, bringing the sea onto the land. The container has created greater security from pilferage, new designs for ships. It brought speed to trade with new automated methods of cargo handling and global door-to-door -door service. The container has encouraged using the computer and the internet with undersea fiber optic cables undergirding the process across the globe, transforming the accelerated handling of information and continuing the role of the ocean as avenue for such flows. The cost of sending information has dropped to virtually nothing. This standard-sized steel box is the greatest innovation in packaging since the paper bag. We don't know who that clever person was, but we do know who is responsible for the container. Malcolm McLean began his business life in North Carolina by buying a used truck to haul tobacco barrels. He started adding other trucks, but Long continued to drive one himself. 
His company would become McLean Trucking, one of the biggest in the business. A smooth-faced, jowly man. He was unassuming, yet gripped by a powerful sense of optimism and a huge entrepreneurial drive. Working for him, some said, was like drinking water through a fire hose. Audaciously, McLean gave up trucking for shipping, and it served him well. He won the confidence of an important banker, Walter Riston, who would lend him important sums of money. Riston was president of what would become Citigroup, C-I-T-I. One of his closest associates said that McLean didn't even think about the risk he was taking, leaving a highly successful business in one medium to make a fresh start and one totally new to him. He saw the ocean as simply another highway, with ships working like giant tractors hauling several hundred trailers. Nonetheless, this trucker would be voted by a professional association to be shipping's man of the century. McLean made transport not only a means of movement, but also a means of transfer. He minimized costs by creating a seamless web, shipping from origin to destination, from producer to retailer, combining speed with efficiency. With just-in-time delivery, ships acted as mobile warehouses. Merchants and manufacturers reduced inventory, thus lowered their costs. Just-in-time is also an American innovation, identified with engineer W. Edwards Denning, a man largely forgotten here in the U.S., but a folk hero in business circles in Japan. Maritime industry thus responded to the demands of a consumer society. Trade could increase rapidly because of increasing specialization and concentration of production, globally accessible. Malcolm McLean was tough. He was also a compromiser. He felt that if it's good for us employers, it's got to be good for labor. His objectives were beautifully simple, to deliver cargo cheaply, fast, and with minimal damage. For that, he recognized he needed the cooperation of labor. Labor was apprehensive about change. Substituting the crane for the stevedore seemed a huge threat. Management argued that cutting costs makes ports more competitive, hence generating more traffic and ultimately more jobs, thus labor would benefit. Labor distrusted this reasoning. We handled ten times the amount of cargo that we did decades ago, but now we have one-twentieth of the people doing it. Indeed, the new technology was not a matter of waterfront jobs going overseas. They disappeared, causing strikes and disorder all over the maritime world. Chile, France, Greece, even India, labor always seemingly the loser. The old system may have employed many people, 
but often miserably. I once stepped into that past on the Yangon waterfront in Burma, where I saw 50 kilo sacks of rice being carried by hand. This was piecework. Some men would carry two at a time. Working all day, it was literally backbreaking, but for many, better than no job at all. The change fostered sorrow and nostalgia on many waterfronts. One Liverpudlian remarked, they didn't just sack the men. It wasn't just the job. Most started on the docks as young men. You grew up together. You knew the families. You knew how many kids and how many grandkids. You'd probably been to their weddings or communions or whatever. We've lost a community. For the ship and the container it carried, it enabled globalization. You and I can see this in a context of social issues versus international business interests. The unhappiness and anger of the many who feel left behind is now playing itself out in politics, and those who support free trade struggle to articulate its real advantages for a global economy. Containers came of age on the shores of the South China Sea, their usefulness satisfactorily proven by supplying the American forces there during the Vietnam War. Da Nang and Saigon were overwhelmed by the demands of traditional break-bulk shipments. Waste and thievery benefited the Viet Cong enemy. Containers solved the problem. Vietnam for the U.S. was a disaster in many ways, but not of logistics. McLean's Sea Land Corporation built a container port in Cameron Bay, and he conceived the idea of filling empties from Vietnam in Yokohama for the trip back home, thereby increasing income. Thus, the third episode of Oceanic Revolution by introducing the intermodal to world transport, gave birth to complete logistics networks. With an increased focus on megaports, this led to greater vulnerability, heightening security concerns, not just from possible terrorist attacks, but because just-in-time delivery heightens sensitivity to any disruption of carriage inventory, or production cycles. Ludwig and McLean were both highly successful as innovators, but less so as developers or exploiters. They are more identified with modes than with markets, and they did not pass on the great fortunes their initial triumphs would suggest. But they personify the American role in oceanic revolution, which we tend to forget. A new maritime society emerges from these changes in the ways we move goods and ideas. Join us next time for episode 29 to examine this new society. 
Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Recording by 1623 Studios, Gloucester, Massachusetts. Production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Faré. Goodbye until next time.